This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg and today on Backstory, twice yearly journal, Lindsay, now in its third edition and still living up to its aim of celebrating the importance of culture in place. Uh, Again, this edition features uh, an incredible array of genuinely diverse uh, interviews and features as well as stories of other sorts. Uh, The feature cover is Lebanese uh, director Nadine Labaki and Berlin-based composer Niels Fram also features in this edition among many, many others. Editor Beth Beth Wilkinson will join me later in the hour to talk about this publication uh, and her commitment and the, the magazine's commitment to genuinely diverse content. But very, very soon, Stella Prize winning novelist Kerry Tiffany, author of Mateship with Birds and Everyman's Rules for Scientific Living, has released her latest book. Exploded View is a slim, almost novella-length 191 pages set in the suburbs in the 1970s, a family with a constant current of violence running through it, as seen through the eyes of a girl who captures the shape of things in her unique idiom. Carrie will join me very, very soon to talk about this book, her writing style and much more. You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. In 2013, her novel Mateship with Birds was the winner of the inaugural Stella Prize and was shortlisted for numerous other awards. Carrie Tiffany's unique writing style and unflinching gaze through her young protagonists plays both... is plays as both evocative and disquieting. It's a style she deepens in her latest book, uh, Exploded View, a slim 191 pages looking through the gaze of its unnamed protagonist at her terrifying suburban world. Truly, this book has a chilling effect, which is really the result of a masterful writer and her work. Author Carrie Tiffany joins me now to discuss her book. Carrie, welcome to Backstory. Thanks, Mel. I actually, um, we were talking off air before about how I regarded this book and I sort of I, I refer to it as a thriller uh, and you sort of said that you were quite surprised that I described it that way. Why, why do you think that's a sort of spri- surprising description for a book of this nature? Um, well, I'm kind of delighted by it really because, um, you know, maybe it will encourage people to buy some <laughs> copies. People want to read thrillers. Um, but the sense of uh, tension in, in the book, the idea um, as a writer that you could make um, a feeling, a strong feeling like tension, anxiety from words, from mm. language is, um, you know, kind of one of the challenges of the form. So, um, so no, it's exciting to me that you had that response, yeah. It's, look, there's so much to talk about in this book, but I do really want to stress that the, the writing craft is, is really something that has captured a lot of readers' interests. Uh, you, I'm, I'm sort of, you know, thinking of writers like Ama McBride or, you know, Sophie Laguna is, is really what I'm starting to kind of think about when I read this book. I have to really stress, I read a lot of books. <laughs> Obviously, I do a book show. Uh, we talk about books every week on this show. Uh, so I am exposed to a lot of books out there. So it really is something incredibly special when you get a book that, that really 
you know, plays with language and and makes you look at things anew. And this book is definitely in that category. Uh, there are things about the language usage that I really want to talk about. One kind of aspect in particular is that, you know, this this particular protagonist really is, is talking about things in a slightly childlike way um, that has an almost, I think, fairy tale-esque quality to it. Um, you know, she's referring to what, you know, her father as father man. Um, there's, uh, you know, this sense that the way she uses language is is unnatural, but also very natural to this, uh, this idiom that's been created. Uh, and there's within that some incredibly powerful descriptions of what I can only describe as quite awful violence um, that, that sort of runs as an undercurrent. I think the tension really comes from never quite knowing when that's going to explode um, and and also because there's something about the, the character's voice that lulls you into, um, into being in her perspective. Can you talk to me about how you created this voice? Because I am really, I went back over it a few times to sort of try and un- unpack um, how you did it, but it's very, um, it's so elegantly done, you can't see the brush strokes. I'd love you to talk about that. Oh, thanks, Mel. Um, voice is actually quite difficult to talk about because I think there's something mysterious you know, even for the writer about how that happens. So as I was working on the book, um, I, um, and I do a lot of revising and I work very slowly. So it's sort of this process where I'm always taking things away. I'm always astonished that I actually can develop a book um, because I take so much away. I really should just sort of have a postage stamp at the end. But the test for me very much as I'm writing and as I'm rereading what I've written is sort of... um, I can always tell what is not voice, what is not working. And and I have a very kind of sharp, I hope, eye for that and critical eye for that. And so I will, you know, immediately need to rework something or remove something. But this sense of it being, I think it's almost sort of musical that it sort of hits some true note. And that's ultimately the test is this kind of um, the truth of the character, the sincerity of the voice. Um, and because this is set in a very ordinary suburban setting, you know, in, in the late 1970s in quite a kind of ordinary Australian family, the, the things, uh, the, the, the language encompasses very common things in the world, you know, TV and cars and houses and families and just the stuff of the world. So you're dealing with... Um, you know, language that is quite flat in some ways and language, language that is very familiar, you know, grammar that's very familiar, words that are very familiar. But being able to do something with that, you know, being able to do something with the rhythm of that or how you juxtapose it, like how you might put different things together um, to create that kind of tension and to create mm. the distinctive voice that you get the sense that you're actually sort of inside this character. It's sort of interesting because, you know, I mentioned Amy McBride before and a girl is a half form thing you know there are definitely flaws in the book but that smashing up of language is what really I don't know some it cuts the surface uh and and really lets those kind of thoughts get injected into your your bloodstream in a way that I think traditional prose doesn't so in a way it kind of as you said works more like uh, music or poetry when you're sort of Um, messing around with usual forms I Mm. think Uh, your brain is sort of tricked into hearing things in a different way and it's it's really quite wonderfully done I do want to there's there's much more I guess uh, there's better examples of this and I would love you to do a reading uh, but 
you know, the way that you're kind of winding in this sense of constant threat is a really interesting approach to writing. And um, and just as a kind of trigger warning for those uh, who may need it as well, this book does deal with themes of domestic and family violence, um, but actually done in a way that's that's quite um, that, that is incredibly. Uh, you know, like effective, I think, in a, in a way that maybe direct or more direct descriptions uh, may not be. There certainly are direct descriptions, but the violence is sort of inherent in, in so many lines that seem quite innocuous. One that sprang out at me particularly was... Uh, um, the family are embarking on a, a road trip, which I'm sure every suburban person would be familiar with the family road trip. But this has a, a very definite sort of sense of dread associated with it. Um, and there's a, a very short line in here. And a lot of the, um, the sections in this book can be quite staccato and short. There's entire scenes that are covered in a small paragraph. And this is a scene that's covered in about three lines, less than two and a half lines. And it goes, a car is the ideal container for a family. You can be always going to a better place and it keeps everyone stamped down neatly in their seats. And I just found that one of the most horrifying <laughs> images <laughs> for so many reasons, I'm sure, because I also have been on a lot of family trips. But I just thought that that really is the essence of how you've kind of captured this this sort of, you know, danger, I guess. How did you do that as a writer, though? What did you leave out? Did you write long and then pair back? Uh, yes, definitely. Um, but I think that that section particularly, so the road trip in, in the middle of the book, does um, cover some similar territory of a road trip that my family took when I was 14. So we got in our car in Perth and we drove to Cairns it took about seven days and we spent three days in Cairns and then we turned around and drove back again and I had a, a kind of real sense at sort of 14 in the back of the family car of being that the car was very much a kind of container you know that we were sealed in it and that you know we were kind of it was a container for our loneliness in some ways and we were driving through the outback which seemed I'd been excited about going to but it seemed also a tremendously lonely sort of place and then the sort of roles within the family were so delineated you know my stepfather did the driving and my mother had this ridiculous map of Australia that was you know enormous and she couldn't fold up properly and there were Arguments and this sort of sense of um, the family having a kind of emotional engine in the car as well as the actual engine of the car. So a lot of a lot of that sort of material is a sort of mixing of memory and then actual research. So I actually redid some of that road trip a few years ago as an as an adult and tried to sort of um, refresh my eye to some of the experiences on the road. Um, and and then just yes this this sort of working at a very tight level um and i know when i sort of tell people that i'm in a phase that i'm doing some writing i never say i'm you know working on my novel or i'm working on a book i always say i'm working on my sentences because <laughs> this is the 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 this is where the craft is mm. for me just very much at the level of this sentence and even you know after spending some hours just even if i have a couple of them that i think are working in some way um that's kind of satisfying for me so it's it's a very slow process it sort of feels to me like the process of writing poetry in a way or writing a short story where you're really trying to create these tiny hard universes out of really quite small uh you know 
paragraphs and descriptions. Mm. It's just almost like this, you know, compacted, like this, mm. you know, like coal or something. There's really, it's dense. Um, and, uh, you know, but at the same time has that sense of musicality running through it. It's really quite an, uh, an interesting process that you mm. that you go through and that you can feel as a reader. Well, you shouldn't be able to feel it as a reader. <laughs> I think that's that's really it. I think one of my biggest criticisms of, of um, writing that is really well put together, um, but that you can always feel the writing behind yeah, it, yeah. Um, that doesn't tend to have as much of an emotional impact, whereas writing like this where, you know, basically all of the scaffolding has been removed and it's been smoothed over and you can kind of, you know, that just sort of feels, like you say, like music. Um, mm. It's really interesting. I love that coal image. That's yeah. really, thank you. That's really fabulous, that kind of going into something that is kind of black at its heart is really, or it's actually sort of bringing the light into mm. something which there's no light. But I, I sort of, I don't want to talk myself up about this because, in fact, I think one of the reasons I work like this is that I just can't do the other thing and in some ways I wish I could but I'm I'm just not someone who can write sentences like you know and then the next day this happened or I can't do that kind of something in me that really struggles with those mm. sort of narrative connections and I'm you know much more confident in the first person than the third so distance where I'm the writer and I'm kind of working as some sort of puppet master manipulating things doesn't really work for me I'm just kind of crap at it it's mm. more visceral for me and I'm really putting myself behind you know the the eye of the first person eye is literally a pair of eyes my eyes that I'm sitting behind and trying to experience or re-experience through yeah I would love you to give the listeners a taste of the writing and for those who've just joined us uh, you're listening to Backstory on 3 R. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I'm talking to author Carrie Tiffany about her most recent novel Exploded View um, yeah please give us a little bit of a taste of the book Okay, Mel. Um, so the, the young uh, narrator, she's probably about 14, um, lives on the outskirts of Perth with her family and her stepfather has a um, sort of shonky mechanics business at the back of the um, the family property and he fixes the neighbours' cars. Um, and the, the girl and her stepfather are involved in a kind of um, a sort of moral war, I think, and um, she... Uh, takes revenge against him and uh, gets up at night and goes up to the cars and sabotages them. So this is a, a, a little bit about that experience. At dinner, my mother has her Mills and Boone on the table and there's the television for us. The telephone rings. Father man says not to answer it. My brother washes up, I dry. Then I read a bridal magazine from the tip in my room. I think I'd like to sleep. I try to sleep. There's no firm plan in my mind for sabotage. But after a few hours, I climb out of the window and go to the cars. There are always cars to go to. You might just touch them or sit in them, try to sleep a little even across a bench seat. There's no plan to hurt them until you do. It's not a crime if your mouth does it. Soft parts or hard parts, it's just the same your two lips making a seal around the hose, your teeth pushing through tired rubber. There are fibres crisscrossed in there, a weak kind of string. The last bit is more grinding than biting. Where it was one firm thing, now it hangs, doubled, ragged, and you feel sorry about that. 
Afterwards, the oil and the bits of rubber stick to the insides of your cheeks and are foul in your mouth, so you need to spit them into the dirt. It's not a crime if your hand does it when your eyes are shut. Blind reaching, blind stroking, skin on metal, fingertips tickling, tickling bolts, the slackening of the part as its fastenings loosen and then the cool fall of it into the hand, draped then quickly in a rag or pocketed. The sky will be black after, but a dog won't always be barking. If a dog is barking, even a long way away, you can reach out for each beat so you don't have to listen to the air going in and out of your ribs and the heart over hot in there too. It's not a crime if your hand does it while you look the other way. You can do it outside or in the workshop. There are pinholes in the roofing iron for starlight to get through. There are tools with yellow plastic grips that are happy like toys. And you get better at it, so your eyes don't even ask to look anymore and your skin isn't nervous. You can use the trowel or a broken piece of star picket to dig a hole and bury the part. Don't bury them too close together. Avoid a cluster. Give them their own plot. The ground is never too hard for digging. Even with a large part, there isn't much excess. The dirt and the stones make room for the part and fit back together again much like before. If you don't look at what you're doing, if you do everything by feel, there are no witnesses. There's a stain on you but that can be cleaned away. And then the only thing that's left is what you felt. That's uh, really quite amazing, Carrie. Um, I, I really feel like, uh, you know, I, I can't imagine um, that a description of sort of, you know, a young girl sort of uh, basically um, messing with her father's work is, is ever described quite that way. And I think what you've tried to, to do there is so interesting because that sense of disquiet is again really um, absorbed into that. It's both beauty, there's child metaphors and there's also obviously metaphors for for sensuality or sexuality going through it as well, which are both um, beautiful and disquieting. It's really quite lovely. Do you consider yourself a poet on one level? I know I sort of, I, I raised that before and, and you didn't really well, kind no, of Well, no, I, I, um, I think all fiction writers want to be poets. I think, you know, it's the highest form and I think that we write prose because we can't write poetry, <laughs> but we want to write poetry. Well, I would and really argue against that given the, oh. um, given what we've just heard. Mm. I do want to actually read a, another small section which um, which I think is it's really a... It's a really interesting um, approach to things because um, you've given the reader these kind of quite little pieces, I guess, um, little um, mosaic pieces to put together uh, that kind of really build up a picture. And that's the nature of, um, of how you've kind of framed things as, as being through that, that young protagonist's eyes. So the way she sees the world is not in overview generally. It's just these little pieces that... that gradually sort of map together to fit a whole but there are these moments where you're given a little bit of a roadmap to understanding and one of them falls halfway um 
through the book and that is what if you were to choose a tool to love not a different one every day or every week but the same tool for your whole life father man would be a hammer my mother would be a rag I would be a knife the knife handle the knife blade the knife tip is nothing without a hand to hold it a knife is deaf of course it is all tongue but no talk it is momentum forward motion a knife has no break it is treachery and misery a knife is the most sordid of tools cut and run slash and spill my brother would be string it's just it is uh, extraordinary sort of like I guess encapsulation of this family and who they are but it's also really interesting that um, that very definitely a protagonist is a knife kind of cutting into the very heart of that family Um, you know it's a it's a really interesting description I am interested in who the character is in a way because um, there's a naivety to the writing, but there's also this incredible sophistication. Who is she in your mind? Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> well, she is language in some ways. You know, she's someone who's constructed entirely of language. But she's um, someone who in the in the outer world doesn't have um doesn't have voice so she can't speak she doesn't speak in the book she goes through very long periods where she doesn't speak aloud to her family and she takes um notice of how long it's been since she has actually spoken aloud not that anyone notices <laughs> but but she doesn't speak but so who she is is an attempt to give voice to someone who's silenced in some ways and to show that even people who are you know kind of vulnerable and quiet and who are not yelling and who are not powerful and um, um, that there's something happening behind the skin, that there's something happening in them, that all of us, there are these feelings kind of teeming, these experiences teeming. And she says at one point, you know, you're only, uh, about not speaking, you're only lost to others, not to yourself. So I wanted to show that still there was a a possibility of a kind of really rich and quite sophisticated and intelligent internal life for someone, despite the fact that they are in a really oppressed and, and, you know, degraded situation, that in fact by, you know, damaging someone physically, that there's still this kind of struggle for the soul in some ways. So... That's very much that sort of at the heart of what I wanted to get at here. Well, Carrie Tiffany, this is a, a tiny volume at 191 pages, but don't keep saying that. Mel. Well, it is, but it's. Um, <laughs> I, I want to stress that because this book has such heft to it that it is a slim volume with so much in it. And I, I'm only saying it's short because I really think that um, that you've managed to pare back to the very essence of this book um, and what it should be. Sure. I Sorry, I just feel apologetic. No, no, there's not a line wasted. Um, I actually took maybe longer to read this in some ways because I wanted to go over the language and be in it. Um, but you also have the, the real benefit of being able to read this in a sitting if you want. Um, but it's just delightful to to kind of um, inhabit um, and awful and uh, incredible da- incredible darkness in here. But the language itself is something of beauty. So thank you for this book, Carrie, which you should never apologise for, <laughs> length or otherwise. Thank you, Mel. That was uh, Carrie Tiffany joining me to talk about her latest book, Exploded View. Exploded View, I should get that right, which is out now through text. A highly recommended read. Uh, you're listening to Backstory on 3RRR. I'm uh, going to be talking to Beth Wilkinson, the editor of Lindsay Journal, um, next. <laughs> 
triple R. You're listening to Backstory on 3RRR. I'm Mel Cranenberg. Now, Lindsay Art Journal comes out twice a year and this edition is very much one to get your hands on. Lindsay's a journal that talks about celebrating the importance of culture and place and I really do think that, that very definitely this has an internationalist focus and one of a multicultural viewpoint as well as having a real range of different styles and types of writing from the interview form through to uh, really challenging and interesting non-fiction and stories as well. This edition features a cover story of uh, about Lebanese director Nadine Labaki featuring an interview uh, and also looks at Berlin-based composer Nils Fram, Moroccan-British artist Hassan Hajaj, a deep dive to the ocean floor with Japan's armor divers and a reflection on the Bengali resistance just to name literally a few. Editor Beth Wilkinson joins me now to talk about this edition and all it contains. Beth, welcome to Backstory. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, I do want to kind of start with uh, with the cover story, mm-hmm. uh, an interview with director Nadine Labaki. But before we embark on that, because that's actually something that you yourself conducted, um, I want to talk a little bit about Lindsay Journal mm-hmm. for those who aren't familiar with this fairly young journal. It's, it, it is young. It's yes. three, <laughs> three editions in, but that means 18 months of publication because it comes out twice yearly. I want you to talk a little bit about uh, the journal and its aims to celebrate the importance of culture and place. Um, So, yeah, like you said, the first issue came out around this time last year. So it is really young and so much has happened in those 12 months. It's been a bit of a wild um, journey on my behalf. Um, But, yeah, essentially for me it felt like something that I wanted to create a magazine that would give readers everywhere an opportunity to be able to learn about places and cultures irrespective of whether they would ever travel there and I think I could see the benefits that we can gain from like going to different places and sometimes we don't have those opportunities and and you know even in Melbourne we're quite a multicultural city and I feel like through that like growing up here I've perhaps had more exposure to different cultures than some people growing up in other cities so it's like how do we create something where people can uh yeah have that opportunity to learn about so many different parts of different cultures that otherwise they would never have that opportunity and hopefully in that in that way by learning about that you can also start to appreciate that difference that exists because I think even as myself, you know, I come from a um, design background and I think it's very easy to very clearly form these ideas about what we do like or what we don't like or even aesthetically what is what are good aesthetics and what are bad aesthetics but I think sometimes all those things are formed by what we're exposed to and I think, you know, this magazine, like creating it has even made me challenge like my own biases about like what I think um you know yeah is something you know like a craft that I'm interested in or you know and not always just going for the stories that I'm naturally drawn to but actually trying to create as good a breadth of like the world as possible so yeah now I want to talk about uh the Chaos and Miracles of Making Films in Beirut, mm-hmm. uh, an interview with Nadine Labaki. It's an interview you conducted. Uh, people may be familiar with uh, Nadine's 2007 film, uh, Caramel, 
um, which is set in a beauty parlour in Beirut and sort of really, you know, focuses on the everyday life of, of women um, who go to this salon while there is... Uh, you know they're under siege basically Mm -hmm. uh it's an incredibly powerful uh film in that respect in that you know what's happening you know everything is kind of really framed by what's not um on screen Mm -hmm. uh she has another film out now and I would love you to discuss the film itself and also the interview that you did with her, which is, you asked the most beautiful questions, I have to say. Just, well. just for clarity, so um, Stanislava oh, Pinchuk actually did the interview. Oh, I'm so sorry. You yeah, did the photography. And I did the oh, photography. Oh, but no, that's Stanislav fine. did an excellent job. She did, she did. Um, it's, a, it's really fantastic. I, I was going to say, I didn't realise you had Ukrainian heritage as well because Stanislav does talk about that. But, yes, yes, um, no. So but yeah. there you go. Yes. Um, that's, uh, it's a really fantastic uh, it is, interview. It is, beautiful. Please, yeah. uh, uh, please talk a little bit about this one. Yeah, so I um, had the pleasure of meeting Nadine in New York last n- October when I was there and um, and I think what I love about this interview is I feel like it captures who she is as a person and in that time that I spent with her, you know, she is someone who has this, and I've spoken about this before, but she has this, like, incredible balance, which is so rare, of someone who is both extremely warm but extremely strong. And I think, um, you know, for me, that was something that I noticed immediately. And when you watch that film, Kapana, which is, you know, just the most powerful film, like one of the most powerful films, I think it's the most powerful film I've ever seen. You know, it's... um, And so many people have said that to me. And I think when you watch that, you realise why that would be so essential to be able to make a film like that. And, you know, in this interview, um, this conversation between Stanislava and Nadine, Nadine speaks so openly and generously about you know, yeah, the chaos and the miracles that came out of um, making a film like that. You know, it's it's so raw. It literally, like, captures, like, the streets of Beirut and it's like a film where there is a cast of non-actors who are playing lives that are very similar to those that they had lived beforehand. Many of them were refugees beforehand. Um, You know, Nadine was a new mother on set, so at one stage she was, like, breastfeeding during (laughs) filming. Um, And, yeah, it was like, I think, um, you know, yeah, here we've got, like, 520 hours of footage was shot and it was like over you know multiple years and um to continue production Nadine ended up remortgaging her home and you can just feel when you read that piece like a I think it's just so important because when you watch that film it it gives you even more context to what went into it um but yeah I think you know reading it you just understand like what an incredible woman she is um and also just yeah how much goes into creating a piece of cinema like that and i do want to talk about some of the interview style that's used uh throughout Lindsay, because Mm -hmm. they're really depthful interviews so some of them are situated as q a's uh in fact that is the style that Mm -hmm. you you go with in this publication but you really are like they're well chosen well edited considered kind of interviews and it's really wonderful to sort of be in that frame where you're you're having the Q&A style but it really feels as though it's cutting into the heart of things and looking at things in a different way. Thank you. One Thank example, you. another example of this I should say is Improvising Life and Music in Berlin, an interview with Nils Fram, uh, who you have owned in the editorial is uh, is definitely a favourite of yes. yours. Yes, yes. Uh, talk a bit about this interview. Yeah, so um, yeah, Nils Fram is someone who 
I mean, I I'm so familiar with his music, and I think he is just, you know, one of the most talented musicians. Um, you know, felt is a soundtrack that I have listened to many a times. You know, especially when I was making this um, this issue, but. Yeah, he he is someone, and I guess the thing is with you know back to what you were saying about like our format. Like I think something that's really important to me with Lindsay is you know uh, people like Nadine. You know she she might be doing this press cycle or same thing with Niels if he's touring, and you know they like doing many different interviews and and. I am conscious I don't want to just be another interview and you know what Lindsay is really about is about capturing yeah their story about their connection to place and their connection to their culture um and so yeah I think the angle that we come at is really quite unusual um and I think often you know a lot of um, my interviews will like put a disclaimer out there about what Lindsay's about because otherwise they're kind of shocked by the questions you know they're less sort of traditional questions about their current project um and I think that really comes through in this interview with Niels Fram because uh you know there are there are interviews online that you can read about him and his extraordinary um, instruments and you hear people, um, yeah, like speak to him about that and write about, you know, him from like a very like deeply, you know, musical sort of perspective. But this interview with Niels, he, you know, gets so deep into um, essentially like you know, and I think for me, it's this idea of like, who is Niels from and how does someone become that? And what you realise is that his journey and his like move to Berlin and what the city in Berlin had to offer him was such a big part of that. And, you know, he talks about like how making music in New York would be different by the simple fact that there might be like more traffic out in the street. And so you might start using different instruments that are louder. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's sorts of things I had never thought about. And, you know, he speaks so much about how Berlin has changed over the past 10 years, um, you know, politically, um, you know, talking about essentially like how the city comes awake at night and, you know, he is a musician who plays, you know, so much of his music and records so much of his music, you know, in the middle of the night. And um, I think that relationship between what he creates and the city is something that is quite magical that people get to experience from that conversation. If you've just joined us, uh, I'm talking to editor Beth Wilkinson about uh, the third edition of Lindsay, which is an incredible journal um, that has been going for about 18 months. Uh, It's by annual or twice yearly just to mm. make that very clear not every two years yes it's always a bit um, confusing <laughs> yeah biannual biannual yes. it's very confusing um i i do think that this description that you have um in, within the context of the Niels Fram interview is a preoccupation that seems to run throughout Lindsay which is that relationship between culture and place and creativity uh, and how that sort of changes and morphs. Um, there was one uh, one article in here that sort of made me think about the kind of historical roots of, of some things and um, and how that's then reappraised later on and that was an article about the Bengali resistance um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. as kind of discussed in a in a very kind of interesting uh non-fiction piece by someone whose family um experienced um this or were were in um in bengal but uh, in what is now bangladesh rather Mm -hmm. um and who are now in australia and Mm -hmm. just how they're looking at and reframing this um historical legacy and how their relationship with it and their heritage has changed over time yeah and um i'm actually really excited i haven't announced this yet but um i'm actually going to do an event in new york with 
um, the writer Faria, um, who wrote this piece, to sort of flesh those ideas out more that she speaks about in this. But Faria is she's such a um, I'm, I'm, I've been following her work as a writer for a long time and um, she she writes a lot of, like, she's just a, one of these very passionate writers and that comes through in her work. And what I love about this piece is, you know, she opens in, you know, she, she essentially... Um, when we started working out what this piece could be like for Lindsay, she had this idea that, you know, um, she had yet yeah, grown up with, um, I guess, the poetry and filmmaking, um, like the Bengali poetry and filmmaking and how that informed her and how that helped her connect to her culture. And then she, in her first edit that she sent to me, you know, she sends me this piece and, yeah, I'll read the opening line, but she says, when I was younger, I always used to feel like Bengali culture, that is the divide between me and my parents, the amorphous divide that separated us, the gaping lineage that split us into two was just so boring. And I just (laughs) love that, like, she kind of comes at this, like, from a very honest authentic angle and then like she gets into it and you see like you know how deeply she connected um she how deeply connected she is to this culture um and you know she is um yeah she she has such an amazing knowledge of like the history of filmmaking there and poetry there and um yeah has obviously become like a very important part of who she Mm -hmm. is but I love that sort of yeah that honesty and I think for so many people you know that relationship to their heritage you know everyone has like a different experience of that. Absolutely. There is so much more that's going on in Lindsay and I would love people to spend some time with it. It is really, uh, and I do kind of maybe want to leave on this note, why do you think it's still important to have these quite, um, you know, dense, interesting, reflective types of publications coming out, particularly when they're coming out in print form like this? Um, I think it's just, you know, it's just the time that we live in. Like it's this time when you know technology like we can't even begin to anticipate what that's going to look like in the next five years and um I think people you know it sounds so cliche but it like people really are wanting like that connection to something that is real and is tangible and too often we find ourselves sitting on the couch swiping on our phone and we don't even realize how long we've been on there and we haven't really engaged with anything on a deep level we haven't learned anything substantial we haven't sort of grown as a human being and I think you know and I've seen this since I started Lindsay online and as soon as I went to print like just the reaction to that was overwhelming like you know it it was like Lindsay being online just didn't really exist before it went into print I think that was something that really connected and resonated with people and yeah now I like have these emails or Instagram messages from readers like almost daily just saying how they've discovered Lindsay and you know like a museum store in Rome or like at this bookshop at Heidi or or wherever and then they've like sat there in the gardens and read it from front to back and I think having those personal messages is a reminder that how yeah how much people really want this because you don't even if you enjoy something you don't reach out to someone and write about it I think people do that because they're like really needing that connection and yeah I guess that um they they want they want to learn about the world and Mm. um I think that it's really sometimes hard to do that in you know the oversaturated um space that the internet is there's some really beautiful portraiture in here as well and and with a kind of match uh paper setting it's just quite wonderful to get your hands on 
it feels weighty uh, as a, a kind of book should. Yeah. yeah, I think it's got a bookish feel. It to does it, have definitely. a bookish yeah. feel, uh, and one that you know I've I've kept uh, all three editions now on Thank my you. bookshelves, and you can dip in um, and out as well. The you know things are, are very readable, but also like with all well put together journals, you can enjoy these stories uh, even outside of the time frame that they're written. Yeah, and I think that's something that's really important. Yeah, for each issue, like I I want these to be pieces that are timeless I want Lindsay to be a timeless publication I want these stories to be just as relevant if someone reads them in a few years time um and I love how sort of rippled your copy of Lindsay is in front of you right now and marked and I love that everyone has like a different relationship with printed matter it is like beautiful stock so some people want to preserve that you just outed me as someone who is truly dreadful to her reading material but I just know I so love into that it. I love that I think that there are two different types of people and there are people that get their Lindsay and they very carefully like turn the page pages as they read and they want to keep it like looking pristine and then there's someone who just like has it in their bag and like puts their coffee cup on top and I I respect both both types of readers and I love that. Yeah. Well thank you Beth for appreciating how I'm mistreating this this printed material. Uh, I really appreciate you coming in. Thanks very much for having me. That was uh, Beth Wilkinson the editor of Lindsay an incredible journey. Um, the third publication is out now. You're listening to 3 R. 3 Triple R. You've been listening to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg, and if you like what you've heard, you can listen to the live version of the show Wednesdays at 12 on Triple R. Join the stream on the Triple R website or subscribe to this podcast in your favourite podcatcher. Thanks for listening. Join me again soon. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.